Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. Tonight we celebrate the life, music, and vibe of the late great musician and songwriter Mojo Nixon. He described himself as the voice of the doomed and the damned and the weird. In my mind, he was one of the last great American rebel rockers and renegades. His music has been described as psychobilly, a primeval mix of rockabilly, punk, and country. Only Mojo Nixon could write songs like Elvis is Everywhere, Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child, and Don Henley Must Die, among others. He was born as Neil Kirby McMillan on August 2nd, 1957 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and recently passed away on February 7th on the Outlaw Country Cruise which he was hosting after a blazing show, a raging night, closing the bar and taking no prisoners. We have three great guests who knew Mojo personally and worked with him. Steve McClellan from First Avenue, booking agent Joe Browner, and musician and producer Eric Amble. May Mojo Nixon rest in power. Well, it's crazy. It's rock and roll. It's rhythm and blues. It's comedy. It's country. It's it's front porch. It's down home. It's nasty. You know. Ah, so Jesus at McDonald's and big guy. I was interested in the blues guys that were at the outer limits of blues. I wanted him to be Voodoo Agnew. He said, No, I got another name, Skid Roper. Golly, is it is it like Bon Jovi? And I go, No, it's not. You know. I've got a great guest, uh, a friend of mine, and a man who I consider to be one of the most important men in uh, Minnesota rock and roll. Steve McClellan booked First Avenue and then 7th Street Entry from about the mid-1970s for over 30 years. He's booked over 10,000 shows, including, among others, The Ramones, Fela, Prince, The Replacements, Husker Du. I could go on forever, but I wouldn't have time to uh, to interview Steve about his interactions with the great Mojo Nixon. Steve, thanks so much uh, for coming over. How many times did you book Mojo? Well, this is this is my memory serves me correct at least six, probably more. Uh, you've started in the entry. Ended up doing main room shows. Um, uh, when he uh, the early shows, he had Skid Roper with him, and after that, it was uh, more Mojo. And uh, I, I just remember he was a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, when I when I called you to schedule the interview, Steve? You said something about. Uh, Halloween in an Elvis costume. Explain oh, that. Oh, boy. We don't want to remind me of that. Yeah, he, he was playing the main stage doing an early show, but stayed on for some kind of canvas, some kind of a Halloween thing we put together. And uh, I, I, I remember specifically I was out watching the show, and I got nervous because I thought what he might do is get me to get up on stage. I was dressed as Elvis that night. <laughs> Elvis I, is indeed everywhere. And uh, uh, so I kind of went into the office and hid until that 
worries got over. But what Mojo did was he stopped the show to a dead halt and told people nothing is going to continue until I get on stage. So, of course, the staff came running up, got me out of the office, and I had to get up on stage, and I was... Uh, Mojo had him, uh, had me where he wanted me, and and that that's it was kind of humor. I mean, I wasn't laughing at the time. I was <laughs> just, well, just kind of overwhelmingly get me off this stage, <laughs> and he, he relished it. And that that's Mojo. I I you know I had to when I heard he had passed. Uh, it, 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 he was only sixty six, and the, the only thing that I read in that he was he was working out of San Diego, and I I knew that he had some kind of a radio. I didn't realize all that he had going, but he had a radio show. Did he did he uh, radio or maybe it was a blog? I don't even know. No, what it, was, it was I think uh, when I was doing some it was called Noon in the Afternoon on Sirius XM. Radio. Oh, okay. So it was yeah. a radio thing, and and I don't, I, I had not even thought of him being close to any kind of. He had too much life in him, but um, it, it, I hadn't, of course, communicated with him in years. But I just, I, I dug up an old writer of his, which I think says all there is to know about. The what, guy. And you brought it with you. I, see, I brought a copy of the writer, and without. Putting in the explicit, we, we don't want anybody here editing out stuff, so I'll try to put it in non-editable. <laughs> we got to do a PG mojo. Oh, well, he, he's mm. one that he, you know, he had in the writer something like no disco lighting, <laughs> and then otherwise, after it lights, it said on. <laughs> Very simple. Lights on. That's all you need. And then he had for stage crew. Oh, a couple of stage guys that can help me lug my stuff in and lug it out after, lug it in before the show and lug it out after. Very just basic uh, uh, food menu, at least $10 for three for us three people at a decent uh, restaurant or at least, no, it was at $10 a piece, and at the time $10 was probably a lot of money um, or a decent restaurant. Uh, it just it was one of the most common sense, I want to work with you writers, but right. it had so much humor in it if you just look it over. <laughs> I don't know, but that, that to me kind of uh, mojo had just a humor that was uniquely his, and he made it work. Um, so, of course, with his passing, you know, I, when, when I put out my little two cents worth on it, it was just far too young for the guy. He had yeah. too much life in him. What, uh, you booked 10,000 shows. I'm sure there's shows you did. You were, you were too busy booking the next show in the office that you didn't even get a chance to go out and hear the act. But the, do you remember kind of one of the first times you actually heard and saw Mojo Nixon in action? It had to have been the entry show. I maybe have gotten some kind of a demo tape or see. You know, I never really, I got really not dependent on recorded material for mm -hmm. making judgment. To me, it was all about the live music. Right. 
And uh, so I, had I got a CD or anything, all I needed to do was talk to either some audience that had seen the live show, or better yet, if I found one of the local bands that had actually performed with an artist, I would ask them, hey, you've been to Chicago, have you ever played with Naked Ray Gun? Oh, how were they? And I would get response from, from people I trusted that I booked, oh, it is a great live show. Mm-hmm. And then the other flip side of the coin is bands, oh, like, I don't, I loved NRBQ, the early NRBQ, and their music, I don't, there was nothing recorded wise that really told you how great they are live. Mm-hmm. And then that, and then that's not to dismiss any of the good recordings that came out of the producers or that. I just didn't give much credence to record it until I heard the live show. Right. That's, that's the thing. And when I got so much good feedback, and, and I don't even remember the first time, I'm sure it was before we changed to First Avenue, the first time I booked NRBQ. But we're not talking, we're talking about Mojo. And right. I, I just needed one Mojo show in the entry to tell me this guy is. <laughs> well, and he was with Skid, too, which yeah. actually, to me, added a little bit of live element that, uh, you know, he lost that little bit of edge when Skid stopped touring with yeah. him. But uh, to me, that was all the, uh, the uh, I don't know, it's the live show. I, I didn't sell records at the club at the time, and it was the live shows that were most important. So I suppose when Skid Roper and Mojo Nixon were touring, it was probably, at least in the early days, probably just them two in the van. I can't imagine, or maybe I'm wrong, did they have a manager or somebody to settle up with you after the show, or did you settle with Mojo himself? I think the early shows, it was Mojo, there was actually like the, the big, the, the famous Halloween show. There was three people. He was with three people. Okay. And I'm assuming they all performed on stage and the third one wasn't a manager, but maybe I'm, this is where my memory gets foggy and I right. don't want to make stuff up for the decency of your audience. No, I'm not <laughs> passing around fake information. Um, but no, I, 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 I just remember there was three, so that sounds... Pretty much they might have had one guy on the road. And usually back in those early days, if you had a touring band, the the guy that settled with you also served as the sound man and the driver. Right, right, right. So right. it wasn't like they were wasting energy on somebody D-I- not DIY. You go up and settle, we're, we're the band. Right. So it would usually be, oh, no, I'm just the driver. And I'd say, well, wait, I didn't see you on stage. I'd find out, well, no, no, I'm really just their sound man. But right. They, they, they didn't want to settle. Um, a lot of times with a lot of bands, it was because usually the band didn't feel they would be, they wanted the soberest person to come up and settle, whether it be a band member or a sound man. Right. Whoever was most sober should come up and settle with me. Which might not have been Mojo. Um, I'm, I'm not even going to venture a guess there. Mojo. <laughs> A lot of his spontaneity, I don't think, was was induced anything except mojo. <laughs> yeah, his own mojo, truthfully. Yeah. He, um, you know, back then, uh, you know, and I kind of came of age right at the time, you know, I'm about the same age, is that you had, number one, college radio supported acts like mojo all around the country and then of course you had all the different magazines rolling stone was covering stuff 
Let's not forget how important the village voice was with Robert Criscow and the passing job poll to independent acts. And then in every city, hell, in Minneapolis, we had city pages and the Twin Cities Reader and then a handful of zines. I was getting sweet potatoes. Sweet yeah. potatoes, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Now you're aging. Yeah, you're Ron telling us how old you are, Mr. McClellan. <laughs> um, but I, and then the CMJ report. I mean, I just remember... Well, I remember going over to Schinders to pick up a copy of the Village Voice, and I think Curtis was Curtis A was one of the clerks at that particular. Schinders. I used to get great deals when Curtis was the yes, clerk yes. there. Yeah, Kurt, I think you ended up. Well, it was originally the store that on the block, Block E, that got tore down. Right. That's where the early days. Seventh but I would Hennepin. always grab a Village Voice to to not so much read the critic stuff, to just see the bands. And and follow uh, what was happening on the East Coast. This is before I went to my first to see uh, what was the big music events that happened. Yeah, uh, the uh, new music seminars in New York. City. I remember I bumped into you at one of those. In fact, I think we were staying at one of those cheap hotels off Times Square. Edison. Yeah, we were staying at the, the Edison. Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> those were a good time. I remember. Oh, they were fun. Uh, you know, that's where I got to know Scott. Scott Kemper from the Dell Lords, and we're going to be speaking with Eric Amble, uh, Amble from the from the Dell Lords in the show. Uh, but it was a great, you know, it's where I where well, I actually met uh, Timbuk Three at the Hole in the Wall in Austin, but then bumped into them. Alejandro Escovito was starting to make a name for himself. I saw his show. I I played on his show at the Lone Star the afternoon. His bass player got busted for buying some illegal substances in the park. And that's kind of where we bonded because uh, Alejandro was, it was, they were the buzz band that year. And they had, was, um, which was, which was, he had the early band that never came to me. The True Believers. The True Believers was, was that the first one? I know we booked them. Yeah. And, uh, but, yep. Yep. but I sat with them in the dressing room and then one, some guy in one of the other bands played bass for him and they got through, but, he and I were kind of, you know, trying to support him whatever way I could for a guy I just met. But that's kind of bonded us forever. And then he played it, I think, was it the True Believers or Alejandro that opened for Los Lobos at the, on the main stage? Oh, I'm sure I would have had that happen. And I, he... I always called the Alejandro Orchestra when he started adding people yeah. to the show. After this was after the True Believers. What was the other band though besides True Believers? He was for a short period of time. That's a good question. Um, but anyway, Alejandro. In fact, now that you bring the name up, he's he's doing something. I think it's back down in Austin. I uh, now now I'm not going to pass along false information, but I think Alejandro's involved in something because he had that medical thing come on, and there were a lot right. of clubs around the country that did benefits and sent money yeah. to support him. Well, you um, know, Steve McClellan, uh, I've known you for years, and after I think I played uh, the entry we were talking earlier that I opened up for Billy Bragg in his first show. So that would have been 84, beginning 85, and then had the pleasure of playing the main stage. But you were always known as a really curmudgeon, owly guy. But 
once you were like Dave Ray like that, he had that same reputation. Once you got to know either you guys, you realized you were real sweethearts, and you were always an easy touch for free drink tickets when I'd go down. If you, you know, if you knew Steve, if you'd worked there, played there, Steve was good. But here's the story. As long as we're talking about uh, Mojo Nixon today and rock and roll lore, I had Dave Ray open up a show. I did a, a, I think it was Ferris Wheels on the Farm. I had a single come out. And Tony was not going to have, Tony Glover was going to have anything to do, open up for Paul Metza. But Dave was a friend of mine. And you, uh, I believe that's back when he was then playing at St. Anthony East weekly with uh, Tony Glover. And he left the show early. <laughs> no need to see my set. Um, God bless him. And there was another band, the Kingpins, if you remember them. Oh, they yeah. were on the bill. But you went, I believe, the next show that uh, Dave Snake Array did. You took uh, his money and brought it down to his gig. And somebody told me that's the first time they ever saw Steve McClellan out of his office at First Avenue. <laughs> You didn't get a lot of sunlight back then, Steve. Oh, oh but I do. I'll tell you what. Uh, we did a memorial for Dave at the club because Dave was the guy that was more the extrovert. Tony yeah. was tough to know. Yeah, you oh, know, yeah. Even he was the writer for Rolling Stone for a while, and I used to pay attention to that. And, of course, Spider John... I, you know, he used to hang out at the 400 a lot and yeah. uh, too much. <laughs> and so I didn't get to know Spider John. And, and I, surprisingly, I always was surprised that he's the one survivor in that trio. Let's get back one more. Let's give us one more memory of uh, our topic of discussion, right? the great Mojo Nixon. What do you think he really represented Musically and of that time, I mean, he had a certain energy that was really. Yeah, he was obviously an independent guy that didn't like to be told what to do, uh, challenging uh, authority in any fashion, and, and he did it both visually, uh, musically. He was just a guy that you learned. Hey, you don't have to. You don't have to lay in with the establishment and accept their rules. Break them, and right. far better than a lot of punk bands to me that were just out to grab. A, well, I don't even want to get into the negative here. Let's right. just say Mojo knew how to break rules, <laughs> and and you'd walk away giggling. <laughs> you know what? This is a great way to end this part of the Mojo Nixon tribute. We've got to talk some more soon, Steve McClung. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I don't even know who listens to this show, but I'm going to have to look it up. There's a few people that do. <laughs> well, I forgot to bring up in that Mojo writer, the thing that he had for support acts, he did bring up bands like Bottle Rockets and Brave Combo, who were great choices. I have got history with both those bands, particularly Brave Combo, who I loved. But you could also have, he would allow hairy guys in dresses. And one thing he did say is, though, no friggin' flute players. <laughs> Uh, then the other thing about the dressing room is it's got to be big enough to hold at least four people that should be able to sit down. 
and then three piss buckets. <laughs> um, that's but something else brought up when when you brought up who settled for Mojo that I thought of, and I don't want to go off track here. Yeah, but go I ahead. do remember a show where the tour manager and the artist, um, if, if if everybody remembers Shane McGowan, yeah, uh, Shane one time showed up late for the show with his tour manager. Somehow they got on the wrong planes. The rest of the band showed up, but. And this was after he had, this was when he was the Pope's. Right. Uh, the, the, his other band had left him under, who I booked also, uh, who said they just didn't want to be with him when he died. Hmm. And uh, Shane and the tour manager forgot to settle. They both left the club without picking up their money. And, uh, of course, their, that was their tour manager. He, that was his job to settle. And he didn't show up. So I had, um, I forget at the time, I think Frank Riley was booking him at the time, maybe Andy Waters. But uh, when I had booked him, I had to call the agent and say, do you want me to send you the remainder of the guarantee? And I'd say, in all my years booking, I don't, Remember, except for the bands that said, no, you go ahead and send it to our bank or send it to the manager. Right. They had too much money on the road. They had an excuse for me not to give them the remainder. Right. But this was the first case where the band wanted to pick up and did not get the remainder of their guarantee. <laughs> All right. We're talking with Steve McClellan. He's over at my house telling Mojo Nixon stories. And Steve's got the uh, Mojo's rider here. Tell us about it, Steve-O. Well, I forgot to bring up in the Mojo Rider, the thing that he had for support acts. He did bring up bands like Bottle Rockets and Brave Combo, who were great choices. I have got history with both those bands, particularly Brave Combo, who I loved. But you could also have, he would allow hairy guys in dresses. And one thing he did say is, though, no friggin' flute players. <laughs> Uh, then the other thing about the dressing room is it's got to be big enough to hold at least four people that should be able to sit down and then three piss buckets. <laughs> um, that's, but something else brought up when, when you brought up who settled for Mojo that I thought of, and I don't want to go off track here. Yeah, but, but I do remember a show where the tour manager and the artist... Um, if, if, if everybody remembers Shane McGowan, yeah. uh, Shane one time showed up late for the show with his tour manager. Somehow they got on the wrong planes. The rest of the band showed up, but, and this was after he had, this was when he was the Pope's. Right. Uh, the, the, his other band had left him under, who I booked also, uh, who said they just didn't want to be with him when he died. Hmm. And uh, Shane and the tour manager forgot to settle. They both left the club without picking up their money. And, uh, of course, their, that was their tour manager. He That was his job to settle. And he didn't show up. So I had, um, I forget at the time, I think Frank Riley was booking him at the time, maybe Andy Waters, but... Uh, when I had booked him, I had to call the agent and say, do you want me to send you the remainder of the guarantee? <laughs> and I'd say, in all my years booking, I don't remember, except for the bands that said, no, you go ahead and send it to our bank or send it to the manager. Right. They had too much money on the road. They had an excuse for me not to give them the remainder. Right. But this was the first case where the band wanted to pick up and did not get the remainder of their guarantee. <laughs>
Um, and then and, uh, something else I wanted to plug in here. Yeah, you, go ahead. You never mention Uncle Sam's. And yet at the same time, in my very first attempts at booking bands, you'll remember some of the bands. I remember booking Brian Auger's Oblivion Express yeah. when it was Uncle Sam's and didn't realize because he didn't have commercial radio play didn't mean he didn't have an audience because it did quite well. And that's also where I learned commercial radio. It doesn't guarantee you an audience. I remember bombing miserably with, what's that band that did Moonlight Feels Right? Uh, they had a big, in the top ten radio hits when I booked them, and they did less than 200 people. Right. Uh, Moonlight Feels Right, uh, Star Brighters, but I forget their That's name. not the Starland vocal band, was it? No, no, do I? I'm going to have to look up the name. But the other one was, um, oh, God, there was another one who had a top... See, now this is where I should have done my homework for your program, but I'll find him. There was another radio top. He was number one or two in radio billboards, radio charts when I booked him, and he did less than 200 people. But he had a big hit. Everybody knew. It dawned on me, people like Brian Auger did not have any radio play but had a substantial audience, and that radio play does not dictate audiences. So I got that out of the way when the club was called Uncle Sam's. Because then I never trusted billboard charts after that for the draw. I had to really find out whether there was a draw or not. And that's from the horse's mouth, Steve McClellan. What a great afternoon. We've got a great guest that I'm really happy to reconnect with on the Wall of Power Radio Hour in our salute and tribute to the late, great Mojo Nixon. The fellow we're about to meet, Joe Browner, we have a little connection. He booked my very first gig in New York City in June of 1986 at the legendary Folk City. And uh, I'm not sure if we even talked since back in those days, but he booked Mojo Nixon for four years, I believe from 84 to 88. And he's going to talk a little bit about working with Mojo Nixon. So, Joe Browner, welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Paul, I couldn't be happier to catch up with you and uh, talk a little bit about um, basically a one-of-a-kind human being, character, personality, uh, Mojo Nixon. Um, I was in Cancun, Mexico last week. My brother got married, and I was his best man uh, on Tuesday, Feb 6, and I think it was on the evening of Feb 7, that uh, Mojo had passed, and I didn't find out until late, late that night, because um, I started getting texts from a lot of friends, and, um, you know, I, heartbroken, sad, until I read, you know, his final day on Earth, uh, you know, performing, you know, tearing it up uh, with fen- with friends and fans, musicians and his manager you know scott riley also known as the bullethead on the outlaw cruise country cruise um and it, it it's heartbreaking but to go out on his own terms the way he did he was basically like a comet uh, and and so i'll start with that mojo came into my life like a comet too and it was um worked at a small little boutique booking agency called venture bookings from about 1983 to 1988, straight out of college. And, you know, it was a booking agency that 
these, I hate to sound like the old guy, but this was in the days before cell phones, emails, texts. Um, you basically had to get on a phone and hopefully connect with, with your clients, the artists, the managers. And a lot of these folks basically had day jobs or you could only catch them on Tuesday nights uh, in between a gig. Uh, and that's how it was. And, and you know, the uh, the Mojo Nixon Skid Roper record, the first one came out in 1985, I think. And, you know, it was sort of like uh, we're in, you know, we we would love to uh, to book you. And from there on in, you know, I think the first time I, I spoke with him, it was like literally speaking with Foghorn Leghorn. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, he just his enthusiasm was the same on that first phone call till the first time I met him and the years in between. And, you know, I, I became a, a regular daily listener of his uh, Outlaw Country show on Sirius Radio. And just hearing his tagline, I love country, was, you know, was like hearing hearing from an old friend every day that uh, I would turn the radio on. He was larger was than life, and uh, people loved him from the get-go. Well, you know, although he passed at 66, truthfully, he yeah. lived, you know, he lived twice those years. I mean, he was, uh, everything I knew about Mojo, and I did one gig with him uh, in the late 90s at a legalized marijuana rally at the Minnesota State Capitol, and he, uh, <laughs> Uh, he had to borrow my guitar for some reason. He came in without his guitar, and that was the, probably the bravest thing I ever did was borrow my acoustic guitar. It came back in one mm -hmm. piece. He played a great set, but uh, yeah, uh, he lived. I mean, he lived every day, and he was was he always that energetic, even in person when he was off stage. There was no difference on stage or off stage. This. This was not an act, what, one bit. What you saw on stage was the, the person off stage. Um, he was the real deal. I mean, there was no separation of, of personality. Uh, you know, a lot of, lot of folks you see on stage or on screen you have different personalities. This guy, you know, Mojo was Mojo 24-7. And uh, he had more energy... Than, than a five-year-old kid all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Um, <laughs> he was always game for, for fun. Um, he was, you know, I, I would basically say if Will Rogers got, you know, and Foghorn Leghorn had a baby, it would be Mojo Nixon. He embraced right. life. He was funny. He was raunchy. He spoke his mind. He didn't give a damn, uh, you know, about whether you liked him or not. And I would say he would win people over who might have said, uh, you know, whoa, who is this? Who is this fanatical crazy guy? But um, he, you couldn't help but like be charmed by him. And he was really charming. And he, the fact that he went from, you know, being this crazy stage performer who would wear like a, 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 a TV set on his head uh, <laughs> and he would be the face through it. And, and he, you know, his subject matter was, you know, stuffing Martha's muffin or Debbie Gibson is pregnant or Elvis is everywhere. You would wonder, like, where did this come from? But it was like the, 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 
the direct lineage of Jerry Lee Lewis and, and the early days of of rock and roll and rockabilly. And if it, you know, he would probably be Elvis Presley's you know crazy younger brother. Um, it was the real deal. There was no separation uh, of stage and off stage. Mojo Nation. Joe, Joe Browner, what was the very first show you saw him play, and where was it? I've been trying to think of where I first saw him. I'd like to say it was either um, Danceteria in New York City, which was a very hip club back in its time. You know, Madonna was there. All the, the downtown celebs were there. And he, 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 it was incongruous that Mojo would play there. But I think the first gig he might have played was also at Folk City uh, in the village. When, and I think the promoter was Todd Abramson, who a lot of folks, if you're on Instagram, it's Todd O'Phonic. And Todd is also a longtime radio host on Saturdays on WFMU. So I'm not sure which one it was, but I knew that once I saw him on stage, um, you know, I was part of the mojo, you know, religion. You know, I was sure. a believer and a follower, an acolyte, and... Uh, you know, my my message was I was an apostle, and I was going to help spread the mojo. You know, uh, theology. How many? So it was uh, just crazy. And, and everybody that you would pair him with, whether it was you, Paul, or Camper Van Beethoven, or the Pogues, um, he won everybody over. He charmed everybody, and um, as crazy loud as he was, you know, this was he was a. He was basically like a Labrador Retriever puppy who would slobber on you, who would be a mess, who would jump on your lap and make a mess and shed, and, and you couldn't help but feel like you were blessed to be in his presence. Um, I would have loved to. And it to... Was like, it was crazy. And then, you know, he wound up on MTV, and he wound up in the Jerry Lee Lewis movie, and he would do videos with Winona Ryder, and he'd be you know, hanging out with Matt Dillon and uh, the Pogues. And uh, it was, you know, anytime Mojo was in New York City, it was a party. So How many uh, how many shows a year and, were and, you? And, and, and that, that holds true for his very last performance on the Outlaw Country Cruise. I, I wish I had been there just to be in his, be part, in his orbit because uh, the, I don't think there'll ever be another Mojo Nixon. As his booking agent, how many shows a year were you booking for Mojo and Skid? I would say on the conservative side, 200. On the less conservative, 250. And possibly over 300 shows a year. You know? Wow. Uh, he, was a road, he was a road warrior. And um, he was never tired. You know, it was always possible, if I could, to book him... You know, at, at, a, at a NASCAR Daytona, you know, car racing town, because he would, you know, that was one of his, hey, if you can ever book me uh, someplace where there's a race going on, please do, you know, and uh, it was his, it was his, you know, he, it was his hobby, it was his, it was his love, um, you know, or a place that sold fried pickles or, you know, <laughs> he, he just loved, he loved to perform. And, uh, 
you know, it, it might be, it, it started out, and you read a lot of stories about Mojo, his early audience was mainly guys, college guys. But as things, you know, got a little, you know, when once he was on MTV and whatnot, uh, there were more ladies, women at, at his shows than there were guys because he was outrageous and uh, he was just fun, you know. I, w- I would say he predated the bachelorette party. You know, he would have been the perfect bachelorette <laughs> party host. Um, he was crazy. You know, he was just out of his mind crazy. But when I say that, it, you know, I would say that I've, I never saw him drunk. You know, I never saw him, you know, on, on drugs. Um, he was his own drug. You know, I mean, yeah. you know. You, he would yeah, it'd be great. You'd have a few beers, but I would never see him uh, out, outrageously inappropriate. And I'll say this before I forget: his wife Adair. He would talk about his wife in the most loving, affectionate terms, and and uh, great love for his his family, for Skid, for Bullethead, for all of his you know. Every promoter that ever worked with him, whether it was Steve McClellan or Sue Miller Tweedy. I mean, I got a message from Sue Miller Tweedy. Uh, you know, she's married to Jeff Tweedy of, of Wilco. And we don't talk that often, but, um, you know, she was like, reached out to me last week and it was like, I can't believe Mojo's gone. And, uh, you know, I'm looking on Instagram, I'm looking on Facebook, and whether it's the actor Michael McKean or whether it's Steve Earle or, or you, Paul. Um, a number of people were just, you know, heartbroken and still are heartbroken that, uh, you know, this madman is, is, you know, like Elvis left the building. And Well, uh, he, he might have been the last true American rebel rocker. Joe Browner, this has been so great. Number one, I hope we hook up with you after all these years. Thanks for that. Thanks, folks. Paul. Yeah. And uh, we're going to stay in touch. And uh, great insight to Mojo Nixon. I want to thank you so much for being part of this Mojo Nixon tribute and salute. I'm so honored that you asked me to, to share some, some memories of this crazy, wonderful human being. We've got a great guest that I'm really happy to reconnect with on the Wall of Power Radio Hour in our salute and tribute to the late, great Mojo Nixon. The fellow we're about to meet, Joe Browner, we have a little connection. He booked my very first gig in New York City in June of 1986 at the legendary Folk City. And uh, I'm not sure if we even talked since back in those days, but he booked Mojo Nixon for four years, I believe from 84 to 88. And he's going to talk a little bit about working with Mojo Nixon. So, Joe Browner, welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Paul, I couldn't be happier to catch up with you and uh, talk a little bit about um, basically a one-of-a-kind human being, character, personality, uh, Mojo Nixon. Um, I was in Cancun, Mexico last week. My brother got married, and I was his best man uh, on Tuesday, Feb 6, and I think it was on the evening of Feb 7, that uh, Mojo had passed, and I didn't find out until late, late that night, because um, I started getting texts from a lot of friends, and, um, you know, 
heartbroken, sad, until I read, you know, his final day on earth, uh, you know, performing, you know, tearing it up uh, with fen- with friends and fans, musicians, and his manager, you know, Scott Riley, also known as the Bullethead, on the Outlaw Cruise, Country Cruise. Um, and it, it, it's heartbreaking, but to go out on his own terms, the way he did, he was basically like a comet. Uh, and and so I'll start with that. Mojo came into my life like a comet too, and it was um, worked at a small little boutique booking agency called Venture Bookings from about 1983 to 1988, straight out of college. And you know it was a booking agency that these I hate to sound like the old guy, but this was in the days before cell phones, emails, texts. Um, you basically had to get on a phone and hopefully connect with with your clients, the artists, the managers. And a lot of these folks basically had day jobs or you could only catch them on Tuesday nights uh, in between a gig. Uh, and that's how it was. And, and you know, the, uh, the Mojo Nixon Skid Roper record, the first one came out in 1985, I think. And, you know, it was sort of like... Uh, we're in, you know, we, we would love to, uh, to book you. And from there on in, you know, I think the first time I, I spoke with him, it was like literally speaking with foghorn leghorn. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, he just, his enthusiasm was the same on that first phone call till the first time I met him and the years in between. And, you know, I, I became a, a regular daily listener of his uh, Outlaw Country show on Sirius Radio, and just hearing his tagline "I love country" was, you know, was like hearing hearing from an old friend every day that uh, I would turn the radio on. He was larger was than life, and uh, people loved him from the get go. Well, you know, although he passed at sixty six, truthfully. He lived, you know, he lived twice those years. I mean, he was uh, everything I knew about Mojo, and I did one gig with him uh, in the late 90s at a legalized marijuana rally at the Minnesota State Capitol. And he he had to borrow my guitar. For some reason, he came in without his guitar. And that was probably the bravest thing I ever did was borrow my acoustic guitar. It came back in one Mm -hmm. piece played a great set but uh yeah uh, he lived i mean he lived every day and he was was he always that energetic even in person when he was off stage there was no difference on stage or off stage this this was not an act what one bit what you saw on stage was the the person off stage um he was the real deal. I mean, there was no separation of, of personality. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks you see on stage or on screen, you have different personalities. This guy, you know, Mojo was Mojo twenty four seven, and uh, he had more energy than than a five year old kid all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Um, <laughs> he was always game for for fun. Um, he was. You know, I, I would basically say if Will Rogers got, you know, and Foghorn Leghorn had a baby, it would be Mojo Nixon. 
He embraced right. life. He was funny. He was raunchy. He spoke his mind. He didn't give a damn, uh, you know, about whether you liked him or not. And I would say he would win people over who might have said, uh, you know, whoa, who is this? Who is this fanatical, crazy guy? But um, he you couldn't help but like be charmed by him. And he was really charming. And he the fact that he went from, you know, being this crazy stage performer who would wear like a, 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 a TV set on his head uh, and he would be the face through it. And, and he, you know, his subject matter was, you know, stuffing Martha's muffin or Debbie Gibson is pregnant or Elvis is everywhere. You would wonder, like, where did this come from? But it was like the the the, the direct lineage of Jerry Lee Lewis and, and the early days of of rock and roll and rockabilly. And if, it, you know, he would probably be Elvis Presley's, you know, crazy younger brother. Um, it was the real deal. There was no separation uh, of stage and off stage. Mojo Nation. Joe, Joe Browner, what was the very first show you saw him play, and where was it? I've been trying to think of where I first saw him. I'd like to say it was either um, Danceteria in New York City, which was a very hip club back in its time you know madonna was there all the the downtown celebs were there and he, he it was incongruous that mojo would play there but i think the first gig he might have played was also at folk city uh in the village when and i think the promoter was todd abramson who a lot of folks if you're on instagram it's todd ophonic and todd is also a longtime radio host on saturdays on w FMU. So I'm not sure which one it was, but I knew that once I saw him on stage, um, you know, I was part of the mojo, you know, religion. You know, I was a believer and a follower, an acolyte. And, uh, you know, my my message was I was an apostle and I was going to help spread the mojo, you know, uh, theology. How many? It was just crazy. And and everybody that you would pair him with, whether it was you, Paul, or Camper Van Beethoven, or the Pogues. Um, he won everybody over. He charmed everybody. And um, as crazy loud as he was, you know, this was, he was a, he was basically like a Labrador Retriever puppy who would slobber on you, who would be a mess, who would jump on your lap and make a mess and shed. And, and you couldn't help but feel like you were blessed to be in his presence. Um, I would have loved to, and it to... Was like, it was crazy. And then, you know, he wound up on MTV and he wound up in the Jerry Lee Lewis movie and he would do videos with Winona Ryder and he'd be, you know, hanging out with Matt Dillon and uh, the Pogues. And uh, it was, you know, anytime Mojo was in New York City, it was a party. So how many, uh, how many shows a year? And, you, were and, you and, 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 and that, that holds true for his very last performance on the Outlaw Country Cruise. I, I wish I had been there just to be in his be part, in his orbit because uh, the, I don't think there'll ever be another Mojo Nixon. As his booking agent, how many shows a year were you booking for Mojo and Skid? <sighs> I would say on the conservative side, 200. On the 
less conservative 250 and possibly over 300 shows a year you know wow. uh he was a road he was a road warrior and um he was never tired you know it was always possible if i could to book him you know at, at a at a nascar daytona you know car racing town because he would you know that was one of his hey if you can ever book me uh someplace where there's a race going on please do you know and uh, it was his it was his you know he it was his hobby it was his it was his love um you know or a place that sold fried pickles or you know <laughs> he, he just loved he loved to perform and uh you know, it, it might be, it, it started out, and you read a lot of stories about Mojo, his early audience was mainly guys, college guys, but as things, you know, got a little, you know, when once he was on MTV and whatnot, uh, there were more ladies, women at, at his shows than there were guys, because he was outrageous, and uh, he was just fun, you know. I, w- I would say he predated the bachelorette party, you know, he would have been the perfect bachelorette <laughs> party host. Um, he was crazy. You know, he was just out of his mind, crazy. But when I say that, it, you know, I would say that I've, I never saw him drunk. You know, I never saw him, you know, on, on drugs. Um, he was his own drug. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you, he would, yeah, it'd be great. You'd have a few beers, but I would never see him uh, out- outrageously inappropriate. And I'll say this before I forget, his wife, Adair, he would talk about his wife in the most loving, affectionate terms and and uh, great love for his, his family, for Skid, for Bullethead, for all of his, you know, every promoter that ever worked with him, whether it was Steve McClellan or... Sue Miller Tweedy. I mean, I got a message from Sue Miller Tweedy. Uh, you know, she's married to Jeff Tweedy of, of Wilco. And we don't talk that often, but, um, you know, she was like, reached out to me last week and it was like, I can't believe Mojo's gone. And, uh, you know, I'm looking on Instagram, I'm looking on Facebook, and whether it's the actor Michael McKean or whether it's Steve Earle or, or you, Paul, um, a number of people would just, you know, heartbroken and still are heartbroken that uh you know this madman is is you know like elvis left the building and well uh, he he might have been the last true american rebel rocker joe browner this has been so great number one i hope re-hook up with you after all these years thanks for that thanks paul and uh we're gonna stay in touch and uh great insight to Mojo Nixon. I want to thank you so much for being part of this Mojo Nixon tribute and salute. I'm so honored that you asked me to, to share some, some memories of this crazy, wonderful human being. When I look out into your eyes out there, when I look out into your faces, you know what I see? I see a little bit of Elvis in each and every one of you out there. Let me tell you, well, Elvis is there.
everything. He's in everybody. Elvis is in your jeans. He's in your cheeseburgers. Elvis is in Nutty Buddies. Elvis is in your mom. He's in everybody. He's in the young, the old, the fat, the skinny, the white, the black, the brown, and the blue. People got Elvis in them too. Elvis is in everybody out there. Everybody's got Elvis in them. Everybody except one person, that is. Yeah, one person. The evil opposite of Elvis, the anti-Elvis. Anti-Elvis got no Elvis in them, let me tell you. Michael J. Fox has no Elvis in him. Uh-oh. Yeah, and Elvis is in Joan Rivers, but he's trying to get out, man. He's trying to get out. Listen up, Joni, baby. Elvis is everywhere. People say, what the heck's going on? Let me tell ya. Who built the pyramids? Elvis! Who built Stonehenge? Elvis! Yeah, I mean, you see guys walking down the street, pushing shopping carts, and they think they're talking to Allah, they're talking to themselves, man, no, they're talking to Elvis! 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 You know what's going on that Bermuda Triangle? Down the Bermuda Triangle. Elvis needs boats. Elvis needs boats. Elvis, 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 Elvis needs boats. Ah, the sailing Elvis, Captain Elvis, Commodore Elvis it is. Yeah, man, you know, people from outer space, people from outer space, they come up to me, they don't look like Dr. Spock, they don't look like Klingons, all that Star Trek job, they look like Elvis. Elvis! Everybody in outer space looks like Elvis, because Elvis is a perfect being. We're all moving in perfect peace and harmony towards Elvisness. Soon all will become Elvis. Everything, everywhere will be Elvis. Why do you think they call it evolution anyway? It's really Elvis-lution. Elvis-lution. Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everything. Excited to have on our Mojo Nixon tribute and salute a man who played with him, recorded with him, and has quite a musician himself. Eric Campbell has some referred to as the godfather of Americana. He's a producer, songwriter, great guitar player. Uh, he's played with everyone from uh, Joan Jett to Steve Earle and uh, collaborated with Sid Straw and Mojo Nixon, and of course was with the great Del Lord for many years. And I would like to, Eric, give my condolences uh, for the loss of Scott Kempner, one of your bandmates from the Del Lords, who I had the pleasure with hanging out in the New York bar years ago. He couldn't have been a, a sweeter and more delightful guy. But we're great to have you on the phone to talk about uh, your experiences with the great 
Mojo Nixon. Eric Campbell, when did you uh, meet Mojo for the first time? Well, in uh, 1984, uh, the Del Lords were on tour, and we had a van, and uh, this we had a tour manager that eventually got fired, but he had taken some of our money and bought a little television so that we could watch Miami Vice, which was, at the time, you know, Miami Vice was a, such a big deal. Oh, I love and, that show. Uh, <laughs> so we're in, uh, we're in San Diego, and we're all sitting in the van and uh, watching Miami Vice, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm not having it that day, and I just was like, right. hell with this. I'm going to go in this club and get myself a beer and see what's going on. And I walk into the place, and there's a guy on stage in a full bunny suit with a TV on his head. <laughs> and, and that was Mojo Nixon. And so that's, that's really how everything started uh, for me. And I, and I came running back out to the van and like, you guys got to get in there. You were not going to believe what's going on. There's this guy who's like doing uh, this half Holland Wolf and half Chuck Berry He's out of his mind. He's running around with a five-gallon uh, jug of water, beating it on things, and you know it was just uh, it was a, we were kindred spirits immediately, and it, it turned out that we were uh, Mojo. Not too long after that, he got a record deal, and he was signed to our same label. Uh, the Dell Lords were on Enigma, and uh, on our on our second album, we, there's a Del Lord song called River of Justice. And mm -hmm. we got M Mojo to do like his uh, Elmer Gantry vibe uh, in the intro of that song. And that was, that was kind of an eye opener. You know, I've seen, I'd seen Mojo the crazy man, but he came in and he was so prepared. And, uh, you know, there was a finite amount of music before the for the lyrics came in you know there was a, a spot for him and he uh and this was something i'd learned later in life when i started working with him and when i produced mojo it, he he was always running around with these legal pads and he had everything written out and he did this thing one time and it ended perfectly uh, it was just, I was in shock, you know, nowadays with pro tools, somebody could do something like that and you could move it around to fit, but he just did it perfectly the very first time. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to talk to you about a river. Yes, a great righteous river that's flowing through your lives. It's the river of justice, brothers and sisters. You know, a rich man will try to build a bridge across the river of justice and a sneaky man will try to dig a tunnel underneath it. Superman will try to leap across it, but he can't, because we all must swim in the river of justice, brothers and sisters. Oh, let me tell ya! He was, uh, you know, talking to Joe Browner, his booking agent there in the mid-80s. He was doing 250 to 300 nights a year, and you know, you know, you've been in the van, you've hit the road. Uh, 
that in itself, without even playing the gig, is a lot of work. Um, and that he managed to be as prolific, funnier than hell, and with it, truly uh, uh, like a Southern preacher, right? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, my experience with Mojo, like in the Del Lords, we did a, we had a great tour that we were on that was uh, Mojo and the Del Lords and the band Treater Wright, and we did the whole country with that tour. But, um, you know, I think Mojo, he just kept getting better. And, uh, you know, years ago, he said to, you know, when we got together to work on the album Otis, he was like, giving me his like master plan. He's like, I think I have six albums in me. And I was like, <laughs> where did you come up with that number? But, uh, yeah, so uh, um, then the, the, when Mojo and Skid uh, had come to the end of their run, Mojo had recorded a couple of tracks with Jim Dickinson, and then he got this idea that he wanted to make this album with the first uh, cowpunk uh, supergroup and with Dickinson producing. And then, so then that was, uh, you know, myself, John Doe from X, Country Dick from the Beat Farmers, and Bill Davis from Dash Rip Rock. And uh, we all went to Memphis, and, you know, I was making more money than I ever made in my life playing the guitar. And, uh, you know, we had a tremendous time making that record. And, uh, it, it was, uh, it was a trip too. Like, uh, by that time he had his manager, his road manager, uh, Bullethead, who was a, you know, I feel so much for Bullethead cause he's like Bullethead. I talked to him yesterday, uh, and he's in Miami taking care of Mojo has just been cremated like an hour ago and. Hmm. Bullet had literally pushed his body into the fire. And, uh, oh, wow. So, but they had set this thing up just to be a great time and to have a great vibe of the recording. You know, we couldn't afford to all stay at the Peabody, but we stayed. If you've ever been to Memphis, the Peabody is a famous oh. hotel in Memphis with the, with the ducks. ducks. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like other people, there's always a lot of people in town. Uh, Jimmy Vaughn was in town recording. Billy Gibbons was in town recording. But we stayed at the Ramada across the street so we could still go to the rendezvous for barbecue and we could hit the the lobby bar at the Peabody because we were right there. You know, we just, we had an incredible time. I had a great martini at that bar a few years ago when I was down <laughs> for the Blues Foundation Awards. I, you know, when I was, the, the great documentary that I just watched, that just came out literally a year or two ago, The Mojo Manifesto, which I highly recommend, uh, Mojo was on, well, he was always on fire, but he's so on fire during those interviews. And then uh, 
reading about the recording of Otis with the great Jim Dickinson. I mean, Eric Campbell, how cool must have that have been to watch Mojo and Jim and the rest of you working with Dickinson because he's his own Mojo man. Oh, yeah. Well, it, that was really terrific for me. And, you know, by that time, I had already started producing some groups uh, because by that time, I'd been making records for 10 years, you know, and I uh, and I realized that in the music business, probably the only job where it would be okay to get old would be the producer. <laughs> right, good so point. I... I, I started transitioning into the producer thing and, uh, you know, so they flew me down there and they had, uh, they had set up the studio the day before. And so when I get there, uh, Dickinson, you know, people call him Dickinson. It's not a sports thing. It's just, he's referred to as Dickinson. Right. So Dickinson says, you know, well, you come in the control room with us. And I grabbed one of Mojo's legal pads and, uh, and I, uh, was taking some notes and which I, then he started ribbing me for that, you know, uh, like, you're not going to need that. And, uh, him and the engineer Dickinson and this guy cruiser, Bob cruiser, they were smoking, uh, weed in there and, before I had come from New York, this my record collector buddy and, and DJ, James Marshall, the Hound, who's a guy that I eventually opened the Lakeside Lounge bar with, he was like, well, you know, Dickinson, he's a real pot guy. So I had brought two half ounces of weed with me. And, uh, and you know, it, it was the... I don't know, 1990 or something when we did this. And uh, that's when people were drinking around those silly, heavy anvil briefcases. Sure. And uh, after those guys finished one, I opened my briefcase and I said, hey, guys, I, I've got some pot, too. <laughs> <laughs> and so they became my new best friends. Oh, I'm sure. And, uh, and literally... Uh, Paul, they they left me in the control room with them for like five days, and I'm not even playing the guitar. I'm just sitting in the control room. Finally, with those guys smoking pot and watching watching Dickinson weave his web of you know sometimes he'd just stop things and tell a story, and you thought it was for no reason, but later on you realized why he was telling the story. But then. Uh, finally we had to play a gig and so you know dickinson was like okay let's all rehearse so i go out there i rehearse with the band we go play a gig that night and i'm on set up on stage right next to dickinson on stage uh -huh. and uh then after the gig he's like okay everybody's got the next day off except for Roscoe, because he heard me like I had sat in there all week listening to these songs and I had my own part that was going to fit with the existing stuff, you know, and not step on anybody else's toes musically. 
and I w- had uh, harmony vocals too. I did all that stuff on the gig. So uh, he was just like, yeah. So we, you know, he recorded me almost everything I did on the album the next day by myself. Wow. But then the, the, the vibe of the thing was so cool that it wasn't like, okay, you're done. You can go home now. It was like they just, then I just hung out and continued getting paid the most money I ever got in my life up to that point. Uh, <laughs> Enough to buy a little more weed, right? Yeah, well, I guess we did one blues song. Uh, one day, Dickinson comes into the studio, and he's got some little uh, Supro amps, and, you know, the old ones, and we're going to play blues and have a different sound. And that was the song, uh, Took Out the Trash. Uh, so there, there was work getting done. You know, there's definitely work right. getting done. Uh, there's a funny thing. Uh, you know, I had heard that Dickinson had these two kids and he would get them on every album doing something. And, uh, there's a, also a song on there called the star spangled mojo. And, uh, at one point Dickinson says, yeah, do the Hendrix thing. And I'm like, uh, I can do a lot of things on the guitar, but the Hendrix thing is not one of mine. Yeah, right. And, and and he's like, well, okay, I'll get Luther. And Luther was a kid, that, so that's when I met Luther and Cody. They came to the studio, and they were they were just young kids. Wow. And, uh, you know, years later, after I opened my bar, uh, Dickinson called me. And he's like, um, my kids have got this band and they want to play New York, <laughs> you know? Right. So, you know, we set up a gig and, and they played, uh, they played at the Lakeside Lounge and, you know, they had all the, you know, like Iggy Pop was there and John wow. Spencer was there and it was like a real happening. And, uh, it was one of the, it, you know, they've always been great, but it was uh, really something because their bass player at the time, he couldn't make it, so they played as a duo, and I set them up with, uh, I set Luther up with a, like a tremolo box so it would go to the guitar amp and the bass amp, and it was mm-hmm. it was really fantastic sounding where, thing. Where was, uh, where was the Lakeside Lounge? On Avenue B and between 10th, 10th and 11th. We had it for uh, 16 years. Wow, Alphabet City, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, how did, i got to ask you, how did you get the name uh, nickname Roscoe? Well, when your name is Eric, there's not a lot of mutations. Uh, right. For <laughs> so uh, I, there was an after-hours bar also down there in, in the... East Village called No Say No, and I uh, I had started hanging out there and ended up playing there, and, you know, the guy asked, I wanted to book a gig, and what's the name of your band? And I went for a while, my band from Wyoming, when we first moved to Hollywood, we were living out in Northridge at the corner of Roscoe and Rosita. 
And so I just blurted out Roscoe's gang, and then I became Roscoe. That's phenomenal. You know, speaking of producers that uh, smoke a lot of weed, I had a, a record deal for a minute with Tomato Records, and Bob Johnston, the legendary producer, was going to produce it. So I went down to Austin to do a demo with him, and we ended up at Willie Nelson's Pedernales studio for an afternoon, and I spent a couple of days with Bob, and he smoked more weed than Bob Marley. And, uh, but an incredible cat. I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet Bob. Uh, I did get to meet him. He, you know, at one point, he had, he, that Del Lord's caught his ear, and he'd come in to, uh, he wanted to produce a Del Lord's, he, and he came to this uh, rehearsal, like a small demo studio. We were cutting a song, and he blew in there, and, you know, at the time, you know, like, I'm much older than he was at the time, but he seemed like such an older guy. But he blew in there, you know, he's wearing a leather fringe jacket and his hair going everywhere, and he uh, he, he literally blew up the speakers at the studio, <laughs> turning up our song, you know. And the, the record company thought he was too crazy, and... uh so did Scott, but I I do think of that all the time as a, sort of a regret because I mean Bob Johnston, you know. Oh my a, God, that would have been the Delords of Bob Johnston. That would that would be worth a lot of money these days. Yeah, his son Andy drove him around and just rolled joints all day for him. I remember one <laughs> evening in particular. Uh, we were driving into uh, Austin at twilight from the hill country to have dinner, and he went on this beautiful rap, and he ended up saying it, and he said, and that's why Bob Dylan stopped the Vietnam War. And it was freaking incredible. It's like Dickinson, a real mystic, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we've had Eric Campbell on the Wall of Power Radio Hour with our salute to Mojo Nixon. Eric... I want to have you in the in the not too distant future. I want to do a whole show just with you and your incredible history. Uh, and uh, I love your guitar playing. And uh, you and I have Facebooked each other different the guitar stuff because we're both guitar fools. But tell us a little bit about the song we're gonna we're gonna end uh, your part of the show with, which is probably one of the greatest titles for a song I've ever heard. Don Henley must die. Well, Mojo had it there in his pile of uh, his, you know, his pile of legal pads. He he just had those songs, and uh, he had Don Henley, and uh, you know, we were like, we were dying, you know, like because uh, you know, like I'm I've been laughing ever since Mojo's gone, just thinking about these songs and you know the amount of work that he put into them. So, and, uh, you know, there's some bits on there and I'm sure you've, everybody knows the story about how Don Henley actually showed up at this little place, the hole in the wall in Austin and, and sang the song with them and then, uh, split and the Mojo, I said that he, the part that he, you know, he was singing the chorus, but he said that Don Henley really tore into it on the line, don't let them get back together with Glenn Fry. <laughs> no, that is, that's incredible. 
Okay, that's great. Well, thank you, Paul and, and Patrick. Thank you so much. Okay, and thanks, sir. Here's to, here's to Mojo. Here's to Mojo. Thanks, Eric. We'll, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is the sound of my brain. Then I said, this is the sound of my brain on Don Henley. Then I said, one, two, three, four.
Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metzler, engineered by Patrick Lilia. We would like to thank our guests, Steve McClellan, Joe Browner, and Eric Amble. We'd also like to thank the producers of a great documentary that came out in 2022 called The Mojo Manifesto, as we used a clip from that. This show is a real labor of love for me, and I hope you enjoyed it. Buy my books and records wherever those things are sold. Follow me on paulmetza.com. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.